LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Jay Dyer, who joins us to discuss magic, mass media and the mind control matrix. We live in a world of illusion, a realm of the unreal. The primal impulses and drives so central to our being, for meaning, purpose, oneness and love, are diminished and driven out amid the avalanche of disinformation, duplicity and deceit under which we labour day in, day out. Our culture has become corrupted, our instincts corroded, and the very idea of truth lost in a sea of lies. Many among us think that it has always been so. Still others see a species simply gone astray, forlornly searching once more for the way from which we wandered on some fateful day. And yet within this matrix of manipulation, we can discover patterns of programming many of which, while having ancient origins, point to a very modern purpose. An agenda whose end game is encoded in the symbols and signs that surround us is being expertly executed moment by moment, moving humanity, the earth itself, and maybe much, much more than that, toward a goal impossibly vast. Wading into the world of conspiracy theory, the swamp of secret societies, and a great deal more, We explore intriguing ideas and wild speculation alike, and along the way, uncover a decidedly dark and disturbing picture. Hello and welcome, Jay, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, Jay, we're going to be talking about a number of uh, fascinating topics, uh, predictive programming, the secret space agenda, breakaway civilizations, and how this nexus is in with pop culture. If listeners are unfamiliar with some of those the early terms, and certainly pop culture, everybody knows what's that, and we're, what's that is about. We're steeped in it in our daily lives. Before we dive into this, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yeah, I'm, I have a background in studying philosophy in my undergrad and history, and then in grad school I studied philosophy and literature, so definitely focused on the arts and uh, liberal arts, I guess you could say, and then uh, as I started to have to pick a thesis for what I wanted to work on in grad school, I decided to choose Ian Fleming and James Bond, and how Ian Fleming crafted a lot of the Bond stories from real-world black operations, covert operations, things like that as well as tying it into his own life, and then how fiction could be used as propaganda. So I always refer to that as 
uh, an iconic example of something that we could call predictive programming, I guess. You know, people want examples of these things, and we've seen things like 9-11, but it's not 9-11 that was, you know, the beginning of this kind of stuff. We've seen this stuff for a long time. Spies for a long time have written fiction because of things like the Official Secrets Act in the U.K., where they couldn't speak about it openly. So what do you do? Well, you write a fiction story. So Graham Greene did this. Noel Coward did this. Uh, Roald Dahl did this. Right? They would, they would write fiction that would, in many ways, mirror real-world operations. Frederick Forsyth is another. And then, of course, Ian Fleming. So the most popular film franchise of all time, until Harry Potter, was precisely uh, all about predictive programming. So that's kind of what my thesis was. The talk, however, tied into not just Fleming and Bond, but the secret space program, as you as you mentioned, and the weaponization of space, the the usage of Skynet, AI, and all that, and how Hollywood film, you know, et cetera, fiction literature has been telling us this stuff for a long time, relating to breakaway civilization and so forth. So. So that's my background uh, academically, and then just on a personal level, I've always loved books, I've always loved uh, fiction, fantasy, science fiction, so forth, classics of literature, mythology, uh, and it all ties in so well, especially when you look at the deep state conspiracy side of things, you start to see pretty evident patterns that, that emerge and make all of this stuff blend into a kind of a seamless web you know you think that we think these things are all disconnected and then they're actually not they're all very much connected so just flesh out the term predictive programming a little bit for us because this is important because it sounds scientific and to an, to an extent it is and it also sounds very deliberate and it, it is right well a lot of people might may find it hard to believe that there are people who believe in the occult or they believe in black magic or they believe in these things. And even if people find that hard to accept, you could still look at those phenomena from a sociological or anthropological perspective, right? So even though, even if you don't accept the belief or existence of any sort of supernatural ethereal beings or something like that, there are quite a few people who have studied the phenomena historically and how, uh, Social, the social order has been affected by those things, by things like black magic, voodoo, blah, blah, blah. And they, so in other words, they have a usefulness even for the state. The state has always seen uh, these kinds of beliefs or superstitions as means or tools for some end. So, you know, depending on what the, what the ends of the state might be, you know, if we're in Aztec culture and you know, they're sacrificing 10,000 people a day up to the sky god or whatever, that, that's the state utilizing a local superstition for their own ends, right? Now, <clears throat> when we, we think of modern states as not operating this way, where we live in a progressive post-enlightenment era of pro uh, scientific progress, uh, we have toasters and microwaves and iPhones, and we don't think that way anymore. But I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, in fact, you know, you can look at somebody like, like Michael Aquino, who was the founder of the Temple of Set, but he was also high up in army psychological warfare in the U.S. So there are definitely still people who have views uh, along these lines who will utilize these techniques. Uh, and if we come to the realization that Hollywood and 
and even the arm of the mass media that we might call mass publishing or fiction, right? Twilight or uh, Harry Potter, these kinds of things. It's all ultimately part of the same octopus or specter-like entity, I guess we could say. And that's why you see a unified agenda across the spectrum, right? Full-spectrum dominance or full-spectrum subversion, depending on how you'd like to word it. But to explain what predictive programming is, is it's really a, a, a form of conditioning on the, on the most basic level. So if I, uh, if we think about uh, sometimes people cheat on one another, right? So if a girlfriend cheats on you, you cheat on your girlfriend, something like that. And you might uh, use the abuser technique of gaslighting where you, you say or she says to you, as you caught her in bed, uh, you didn't catch me in bed cheating on you. Why would you ever think that, right, when it's, like, completely obvious that that's what's going on, right? So th- that's just one example. And we've even seen uh, the 1944 Kukor film called Gaslight, right, which is it's been called kind of the the Hitchcockian film that Hitchcock didn't make. It's a very good film. And I recommend that for people who, you know, might be interested in some visual uh, cinematic presentation of what I'm talking about. So so that's just a psychological technique that you'll read about in psychology textbooks or, you know, psychiatry works where they discuss the method of how abusers will treat abusees. Uh, But it's an insight into what happens on a mass scale because you can always go from the micro to the macro. But this, it's an insight into what happens on the mass scale to humans uh, on the part of the deep state, the covert state, military, shadow, industrial complex state, blah, blah, blah. And what they do is craft uh, through their various arms of media productions, be it new, uh, mainstream news or be it Hollywood, they'll craft stories that will prepare the generations for the things to come, to quote H.G. Wells, right, the shape of things to come. Now, predictive programming then has the effect of manipulation, I believe, through the use of archetypes. So depending on what your philosophy is of metaphysics and how the world works, you know, I tend to think that there's a lot of truth in Jungian archetypes. And so these can be crafted and manipulated in a certain way in, say, big blockbuster films to prepare us for, we think about, I think it's Adam Curtis's documentary, Power of Nightmares, right? We think about Bin Laden as the boogeyman or... North Korea and, and Kim Jong-un as this boogeyman, right? But these are actually managed and, and staged dialectics that that allow the, the the conditioning of the masses over time, over generations. And so there are long-term plans. The Royal Society was actually involved in determining whether or not London would be the source of Hollywood or whether it would be Hollywood that would be the source of Hollywood, right? So these are actually strategized and and determined by things like the Tavistock Institute, Stanford Research. All of these work in tandem, right, with NGOs, think tanks. So it's all big, one big octopus, basically. And they will utilize predictive programming to program, I think, the subconscious. And so even though it might be called black magic or voodoo, it's pretty much the same principle as black magic or voodoo. Whether you believe it's supernatural or just a technique, it's the same thing. And that's why we'll see examples of you know, Neo having a, a expiration date on his passport in 1999 in the Matrix, the passport will say 9-11-2001. You know, if you watch Enemy of the State with Gene Hackman and, and Will Smith, uh, Gene Hackman's birthday is 9-11. I mean, this, this, this phenomenon is too prevalent to be just simply coincidence to, you know, to see this constantly in film. And it's not just numerology or things like that. You know, we see so many examples of 
episodes of The Simpsons or The Family Guy that predict uh, big news events perfectly. And to me, that suggests uh, pretty much a, a, a wide-ranging scale of forethought and planning uh, from the entities that I'm discussing. The first thing I thought, actually, not the first thing, obviously, but sorry, one of the thoughts that occurred to me when I was watching the events of 9-11 unfold on TV was like 911, you know, just yep. like the, the emergency number, coincidence, whatever. But when these things pile up past a certain point, and then you start to look at statistical probability, as things start to get very strange. Absolutely. I mean, and it's not any different with most of the major big events, terror events, capstone events, whatever you want to call them, the mass shootings as well. You know, 7-7 was this way. The Madrid bombing was this way. And we, it would be just foolish to ignore consistent patterns in these things. You know, that there's, again, I've seen more examples of events that seem to predict 9-11 that I can keep up with. You know, people put together entire archives of this stuff, and there's just so many that, you know, from The Simpsons to, uh, you know, episodes of The Lone Gunman, uh, the, the pilot episode of The Lone Gunman, the X-Files spinoff. I mean, there's just no way that this could all be happenstance. And when you really focus on this and do, you know, even graduate level work like I did on this, the more that you learn, the more you realize, oh, yeah, it's pretty obvious that, you know, Ben Affleck says openly that this Hollywood is full of CIA agents. You know, it's just not, this is not a mystery, you know. Angelina Jolie tra- trained under Melissa Mela, who was a published CIA operative, right? So she, she openly did CIA training under uh, a person who's a known CIA operative for the film Salt, right? I mean, so, and then these are just individual examples. And there's just countless examples of people write whole books on this, you know, CIA in Hollywood by Tricia Jenkins, Philip Rizzo, Company Man. I mean, they, they just go on and on and on. And this is a whole other rabbit hole that, you know, most people are just not aware of. We just tend to think, oh, well, there's these TV shows and then there's this conspiracy stuff in the background. And we don't realize that, you know, Hollywood is really the myth-making arm of the establishment. That's interesting. I was reading um, something just today, actually, in the press about the success of Hunger Games and Mm -hmm. how the final film which I believe, I've never watched any of this, but I'm aware of it, obviously, um, is just coming out or about to come out. And it mentioned from the same production company or same studio um, at least one other similar show. And I think the public sometimes assume that, oh, well, they're, you know, they're making films like this that are like other films because those previous films were successful. That Obviously, that does happen. You know, we see, particularly in um, in music, for example, how someone will come out with successful sound. They'll then get a string of copycats trying to imitate them, trying right. to garner some of their success. But the idea that when it comes to some of the concepts and themes, recurring themes that you're highlighting, that this is just down to other people looking on at someone else's commercial success, I think that's a bit too simplistic. It is. I mean, there's layers to this to this onion, to this, to this rabbit hole. And most people don't, we might think about the, you know, the average uh, academic or the average professional, the average news reading member of the public. They'll only penetrate to a certain level of this kind of stuff. And, you know, for most people, they think practically, they think, oh, well, it's just about money. 
Well, the money, if you know the mo- that the monetary system is basically a global debt-based fiat system that emerges out of Bretton Woods, then you'll know that the Bank for International Settlements and all these different fiat uh, central banking empires that have been set up, in you know most nations run on it on the same style of system. That's not by happenstance. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that you know most of the the big banking institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, they're all tied into the same global financial structure that emerged with the dollar as the world reserve currency you know that's not accidental and so when you start to research that and then you look at for example the film lord of war with uh, nicholas cage uh that came out i think in 2004 or 5 uh, now this is a film that is a little bit exaggerated hollywood wise but uh almost quasi halfway relates to Daniel Estelin's book, Shadow Masters, which is about Victor Bout, who was this supposed in the nineties, uh, eighties and nineties, the, the world's, uh, you know, it's sort of the bin Laden of the arms trade, right? So he's like this shadowy figure that runs all these jets and nobody can catch him. We can't figure him out. Where's he at? Uh, very similar to the AQ con nuke network, the black market of nukes, right? And so we're given the impression, just like with terrorism or the drug trade, that all of these independent actors are out there running around, and we just can't stop them. Laden. But then you start realizing over time, oh, wait a minute, we didn't know what Bin Laden was uh, after he was wanted for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, uh, yet uh, CBS, ABC uh, reporters can actually fly over and interview him, but we can't find him. But now, wait a minute, Operation Mockingbird has told us that since the 70s, most of the mainstream media has been co-opted by the intelligence agencies. They're tied into it uh, now. So that means that uh, intelligence assets working in mainstream media, Anderson Cooper, etc., they can actually fly over and meet with the leaders of al-Qaeda, uh, right? But, but they can't find them. <laughs> All these narratives start, start not adding up, and then you start to realize that, oh, wait, so actually Victor Bout was not running free. He was actually working hand-in-hand with Western intelligence agencies because, as Zbigniew Brzezinski said uh, several decades ago, that the plan would be not just to control uh, the open markets, so-called, of commercial trade and uh, finance, but also to control the black markets, right? Now, this has gone on since the British Empire controlled the Silk Road opium trade. This is nothing new. This is how the big oligarchic families... Uh, the Onassis's, the right, the royal family. This is how they made their money through uh, inter- international drug trade. Uh, There's nothing new. This is just how the world actually works. And then we're given the impression, this facade, this overlay of uh, all of these independent actors running about the globe, and and uh, you know all these independent cartels running out there. But actually, what it is is that rather that the establishment will have uh, deals made with certain cartels, and then when you see people busted, right? That's the establishment giving the, the impression that they're uh, cracking down on the war on drugs and the war on cartels and all this stuff, when really all they're doing is knocking out the competition of the rival cartel, right? So that's actually how things work in the world. It doesn't work on this fictitious Hollywood scenario. But amazingly, you know, you'll you'll have quite oftenly throughout, or quite often throughout a lot of uh, films and productions, uh little insights and windows into into the truth right and you we can see that in lord of war right where at the end of the film nicholas cage uh, discovers based on the victor bout character discovers oh actually all along it's been the military industrial complex who's uh, been letting me run free and run all these these weapons 
and he meets with that general at the very end who lets him go. So just one insight amongst many that you can get a picture of uh, what's really going on. Oh, I mean, post 9-11, or actually come to think of it pre-9-11, uh, from a, a security and intelligence point of view, Bin Laden might as well have been in Starbucks in Manhattan, do you know what I mean, in terms of being difficult to track down. Uh, they knew where the guy was all the time, but do, don't even get started on money, because isn't that just, that's a form of magic right there. We hear about there isn't enough money, it, as if money feeds people, clothes people, <laughs> as if money builds space shuttles and missiles and moon bases. You know, money doesn't build any of it. The, all we have is the resources, and it's and we see this hypocrisy when, well, for example, here in the UK right now, uh, after the wake of the Paris attacks, just to give people a timeline, that was a week ago today, the government are already talking about having another vote on possibly committing British Air Force power to go and bomb Syria, as if they haven't already been doing that. And But in the meantime, well, with hospitals, we can't afford to repair those. You know, they're all fucked up and uh, these school repairs will have to wait and we can't afford this, you know, the new infrastructure. But never for one second is there a question about what we can or cannot afford to do in terms of, you know, war. So it's, money's got nothing to do with it. But, I mean, we're talking about magic. You mentioned earlier on, if we think of money as a form of magic and all the symbolism attached to it, what is magic really after all? other than focused intent and concentrated energy and will, if you say what I mean, that's the, the origin of it. I mean, people just get this idea that it's hocus-pocus and, you know, hubble-bubble, toil and trouble, etc., etc. And they look at something like Bohemian Grove, perhaps, or Skull and Bones, and they think, oh, this is just like a, you know, a gentleman's club. This is just boys messing about. Boys will be boys. The people who are involved, I don't like to use the term elites, but we both know what we mean by that. The elites involved in these activities are not just doing it for a social thing at the weekend over a few drinks. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, George Soros's early book, I think from the 90s. And the title of his book is The Alchemy of Finance, right? Mm. Now, I wrote, a, I wrote a whole piece where I, where I dove into this. Uh, it's, I believe it's called uh, Alchemy of Synthetic Finance or Alchemy of... Uh, Alchemical Banksters are one of the two. I wrote it about a year ago. But, uh, yeah, I, I dive into that very question and talk about how it's really a kind of a, a sleight-of-hand trick, right? I mean, that's what's going on here. And we, we we tend to think of all this stuff as so complicated. Oh, the global financial markets are so complex, and they, you got derivatives, and you got uh, credit default swaps, and there's all this. But it's really uh, scams. That's <laughs> the best way to put it. And I'm of the opinion that, uh, the oligarchic class, you know, the people that meet at Davos and these different places and the OECD and these people. Uh, you know, we had Christine Lagarde from the IMF last year give that lecture about the magic number seven where she referred to numerology explicitly and the, the uh, magic seven. And this seemed to, at least from my perspective, tie into the down Malaysian plane or the missing, mysteriously, mysteriously disappearing uh, lost script style planes that uh, vanish and then uh, are, are supposedly downed. I don't know how much we can believe of any of that, but uh, you know this actually tied into the BBC Sherlock episode from season two, episode one, where Sherlock foils Arlene Adler's plot, which involves MI6 using a faked staged terror attack with dead people on a plane. Now, that's just one example, but, I mean, there's just too many examples of these kinds of things that continually pop up, as we said. 
And you're talking magic. I, you know, I, I'm of the opinion, I guess, that, you know, you just have, you have, humans are, are different. Some people believe different things. Uh, I, I've, for example, David Rockefeller, I've read uh, Rockefeller's memoirs, and I've read different books on the family. And I don't get any any indication that David Rockefeller himself is uh, part of any sort of occultism. I, he seems to just basically be a completely pragmatic atheist. <laughs> you know, he just believes money is power and uh, everybody needs to die, right? I mean, that's what he talks about openly. Now, maybe he is. Maybe he is a secret occultist. If anybody turns up anything about that, I would be welcome to be corrected, but uh, then you have other members of the oligarchic class who pretty clearly do seem to be involved in uh, ritual magic, occultism. Uh, we think about Dominic Strauss-Kahn when he was involved in his uh, stripper situation, uh, hooker situation from scandal from a couple years ago. Uh, the New York, New York Times reported about Dominic Strauss-Kahn that he explicitly attended Eyes Wide Shut style parties. So. So, uh, you know, the, that comes out. We think about Saville and Satanism that comes out. So, you know, there's di different strokes for different folks, I guess, for these for the uh, oligarchic class. And I think they, they kind of live in a breakaway civilization. They are out of touch with uh, the way most people in the world live day to day, check to check, uh, you know, and they can fly with Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Clinton to some island somewhere and, uh, you know, have have orgies and do whatever they do, Bohemian Grove, et cetera, et cetera. They just live a completely different uh, sort of lawless lifestyle, I guess you could say, beyond the, the pale of the uh, local legal restrictions that most of us are put under. Uh, so they, you know, they know it's all a scam and, and they kind of live above the, the, the level of the scam. So that that's kind of what the magic is, right? It's kind of living beyond the illusion. You know, think about something like, the prestige or the uh, Edward Norton film, the illusionist. I've read a lot of David Icke's work over the years and he's a divisive character, but I've also met him several times and I've got no reason to think he's crazy. Um, I, I don't agree with him on everything, but I mean, who amongst us agrees completely with anybody else? You know, that's a very strange state of affairs. Where I'm going with this is he speculated about, elites you call the, the oligarchical class or a, a section of them like being a different species now here i'm thinking of his reptilian idea however to just try and extend that or rather draw in a little bit into something that might seem a little bit more plausible i have looked at over the years looked at the the words and the deeds of some of these people that we're discussing and then looked at them and i thought that this creature is really not like me i don't i feel closer to a cat or a dog than I do to this other humanoid entity basically that's here and you look in their eyes and there's something different something that's not there something that's missing maybe maybe it's a psychopathic thing but you mentioned eyes wide shut and I don't I don't care what your sexuality is or your sexual preferences as far as I'm concerned everybody should do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else but when I watched eyes wide shut I felt sick and that told me something about, I don't know, and it's obviously it was a, a depiction, a fictional depiction, or, or was it? The point is, I looked at what the activities that some of these, you know, that was depicted in the film, and I, I did feel sick. You know, I just thought, this is horrible. Why would anybody want to have anything to do with this? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's significant. You know, you call, call me superstitious or whatever, but I, but I tend to think that, uh, you know, there is a spiritual realm. There are demons that there are uh, negative, dark, uh, interdimensional spiritual entities that uh, can possess people. 
and I think that there are means and methods by which people try actually try to obtain uh, that sort of possession for the for the trade off of uh, power and riches. I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, I think that's all very real. Uh, you know, ceremonial ritual magic sometimes involves that kind of stuff with the, the Goetia and, and the invocation of demons and so forth. And I think that people are duped into thinking that they're going to get power out of it, and perhaps in a temporal sense, you will be allotted some period of power or something like that. But, but uh, you know, in the end, you know, as the Bible even says, you know, is it worth all that to lose your soul? You know, is it when you mention people not being at home? You know, certain uh, spiritual writers will talk about uh, perfect possession, right? So you know, there might be a situation of demonic oppression or people feeling uh, spiritually vampirized or something. But then when it comes to something like possession, you can have a, just almost a complete and total uh, takeover, right, where it's <laughs> they're not home anymore, like you said. And I've, I've seen people, you know, not just like schizophrenics, but people who have had serious drug problems or alcohol problems or whatever. And if you've ever seen them get really, really messed up uh, you know it's it's not them anymore they're not there anymore they'll they're they blacked out something else has taken over uh something generally very primal very uh rapacious uh you know i've had people even try to sort of attack me a couple times on various uh, pills and, and mixtures of drugs or whatever and you know it's not them people I, i've known very very well for a long time and somebody else is there so that is a personal direct experience I've had that tells me that, you know, that kind of lines up a lot more with what I read about the spiritual realm and, and, and um, you know, and, and not just in uh, Western biblical traditions, but, you know, quite broadly, you know, the, the collected wisdom of humanity and comparative religion across the board kind of has this tradition, right? I don't know. We just think that it's so outlandish and, and, and far out, given the fact that we have microwaves and computers, that there could be such a thing or that people operate this way. And, uh, you know, I, I, just, I tend to think that, that that's a lot more accurate metaphysically uh, in describing the world. That seems to match up with what I see, right? I mean, in other words, mainline biology and psychology, because it's all based on deterministic naturalism and materialism, they have no place for anything like that in the other higher spiritual realms or anything lower spiritual realms, whatever. Uh, they have no place for any of that, so they don't have any, it's not even part of their spectrum to be able to explain these things, and all they ever do is explain it with more chemicals, and then you just throw m more big pharma at something that's at root a spiritual problem. Yeah, we could be talking um, archons or gin or yeah. uh, Watiko. I did an interview with, with Paul Levy on his book, Watiko, breaking the curse of evil, and he was one guy who says absolutely evil exists. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not some kind of exorcist or anything like that. But, <laughs> I, but, I've, but I've worked with uh, street ministries in the past, and, you know, we would go on every weekend, and we would feed homeless people in different cities, you know, big metropolitan areas, and we would spend the weekend doing it. And, you know, you don't have to... It's not long doing that before you start realizing that well, some of these people aren't just you know schizophrenics. They they kind of alternate in between different personalities and different uh, personas, right? Uh, and who knows what what's happened to them? Many of them will talk about their time in the military. They've been traumatized, PTSD, sure. 
Uh, but uh, many of them, especially the vets that kind of wander the streets, you know, they'll talk about being part of military experiments. We, I've, I've talked to more than one who has spoken that way. And if you've ever seen the, the film Jacob's Ladder, the uh, Adrian Lynn film from 93, I think, uh, you know, that's the plot of that film. Uh, so, you know, the Manchurian Candidate. Or the, and what I like about Jacob's Ladder, though, is it's not just a presentation of like, oh, maybe this guy was, uh, you know, part of some mind control project. Uh, it actually brings in the spiritual realm. Like, he feels tormented. He, he feels like he's seeing, you know, the demonic, and he's switching in and out of, he's dissociating, right? Uh, you know, how many Hitchcock films are about dissociation, you know? So I, I tend to think that that's a better explanation of, how our world works than than modern scientism and and based on uh, you know Darwinian theory, which actually can't explain quite a bit. Well, certainly from what's the picture that's emerging from your work and from this discussion is that the people who seem to have their le- hands on the levers of power and control don't think in that narrow you know right, right. R- Richard Dawkins type way about the world. You mentioned um, earlier uh, Michael. Aquino. I'm thinking now of Mind Control and MK Ultra, uh, relating to what you just said about military and, and experiments. I remember seeing some interview footage with him back in the 1980s, and I'd heard of Anton LaVey before this, but I didn't know what he looked like. So when I was watching Michael Aquino being interviewed on screen, I thought initially this might be Anton LaVey. But that was a strange interview because Aquino was pausing for anything up to 30 seconds before answering the questions. And he all these mannerisms, and it was it was literally like he was performing some kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like some sort of mind control on the person he was interviewing him. He definitely had the best of them, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, Crowley even talks about doing this kind of stuff, as do most of the people in those uh, magic uh, working circles and the different uh, magic wars of the Golden Dawn versus different groups, all that stuff. And they'll talk about you know the uh, the stare, the 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 uh, death stare and all that kind of stuff and uh, evil eye that's you know that's certainly something that has existed in those different circles um it reminds me of uh, uh i was trying to think of a literary oh the layer of the white worm if you if you've read that uh, bram stoker story uh that deals with that the, that topic as well the the the, the psychics uh, evil evil eye stare <laughs> it's it's actually pretty funny in that story but um but yeah, I don't doubt that, you know, if you go to Italy, people will talk, the, the peasantry will talk about this quite openly, the strega, which is the Italian witch, and you be, beware of the evil eye, right? Uh, it's true, I, I have a friend who dated a girl who was a Marine, and she said that, you know, after she went to, or she was stationed somewhere, like the Congo or Haiti or somewhere, I can't remember where exactly, but, you know, these are, uh, the, the indigenous Santeria and Voodoo is very prominent still to this day. Uh, you even had uh, Papa Doc Duvalier, right, and his son are both uh, explicit uh, practitioners of voodoo who <laughs> run the country. Uh, g- good friends with the Rockefellers, by the way, I should admit, uh, or I should mention. Um, and, you know, she she said that uh, after they did something related to something at the military base there, that the local shamans uh, put a curse on them. They didn't want them there. And she said that she was tormented for several years after this as a result of the sh- shamanic curse and she had uh, nightmares every night for you know two or three years and 
actually had to go to a priest, uh, a Catholic. She went to having to go to a Catholic priest, and she said it did seem to alleviate her her difficulties. I mean, there's just too many stories like this that go beyond you know just humans making up baloney, and you know too many examples of of, of these kinds of spectral phenomena that uh, you know eerie things that happen that that es- escape natural explanations. And I've read probably ten books on on exorcisms uh, from different exorcists of different traditions. And, you know, it's just, it's, there's just too much of this to, to think that it's completely, it's completely made up uh, or that it's just a manifestation of, of people's psyche, like modern medicine would tend to say, and then you just need to give them drugs to, to get rid of it or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think you're, you know, you're, you're spot on with talking about the connections between these kinds of groups. Like, uh, you know, you can find pictures of uh, Anton LaVey hanging out with John Kerry, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, and we know John Kerry with Skull and Bones. And so, you know, all of these kind of things tie together. They're not they're not accidental. And, of course, the Church of Satan ties directly into Hollywood with Jane Mansfield and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and all that kind of stuff. Now, and, and I'm very aware that, you know, the Church of Satan takes more of a, you know, we're just atheists and, you know, hedonist type approach. I'm aware of that. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that, members of that group can't be uh, utilized by the deeper and darker elements that actually do take things seriously. That's what I'm trying to say. One of my drinking buddies is an ordained priest in the Church of Satan. I'll have to pick his brains about that, possibly tomorrow night, actually. (laughs) Now, talking about manifestation of our psyche, you're highly likely to be familiar with the the movie Forbidden Planet. And you've just put put me in mind of this because uh, I'm just trying to remember now the basic plot but you have on this planet Altair 5 I think it's called uh, and a, a spaceship arrive because there's uh, I can't remember why they go to the planet whether they're responding to a call or whether they just land there for some other reason but they're confronted by this monster um, and it looks like some kind of bizarre plasma or electrical manifestation that's terrorizing the crew of the spaceship and the people who are already on the planet, which was a father and daughter. And long story short, it turns out that this manifestation is a direct physical result of what's going on in the psyche of the father. Uh, Where I'm going with this is the idea that our minds, whether individually or collectively, can somehow affect material 3D reality I think that, and we're again talking about in the realm of magic, that is strongly denied by materialist, reductionist um, mm-hmm. scientism. However, the evidence is there, even experimental evidence in, in laboratories, but it's difficult to replicate, so therefore it's kind of shoved off to one side. So I think that, too, is very real. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually have uh, Fantastic Planet is next up on my list of uh, shows to do. Uh, with Esoteric Hollywood, which is the show I do at uh, Talk Network, where I, where I discuss you know the deeper symbolism and meaning in, in all kinds of films, and uh, I have on my list Gandahar and Fantastic Planet. So it's funny that you mentioned that. It's interesting synchronicity there. But I, I've not yet watched Fantastic Planet, but uh, it, what you're s- describing sounds kind of like Solaris, right? Which is the the Tarkovsky, yeah. the Tarkovsky Soviet film where the planet seems to mimic uh you know the, what's going on in the psyche of these different individuals and i think that this is true i think that um you know so we okay well so someone says well how does this work you know you talk about shamans or curses or exorcisms blah 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 
Well, it works because the world that we're presently in is not the only world or level of reality. And so things can transpire on the spiritual realm that are mirrored uh, in our realm. And this is the view of most ancient cultures. This is why, for example, even in the Bible, you'll see symbology where stellar phenomenon is supposed to signify uh, events that happen on Earth, right? So uh, an eclipse, you know, might mean the downfall of a king or his dynasty or something to this this of uh, this nature right and, i mean i'm not saying that it's always correct i'm just saying that's the way that uh, the medievals and the ancients viewed the world in this way of correspondences where things correspond to one another beyond just uh, spatial and temporal lo- location so you know mercury might have a reference not just to the planet but also to the images that are made of mercury right or the actual element of Mercury, right? They, they would have a, a deeper metaphysical correspondence on a different on a different different plane of existence beyond just uh, the fact that oh well that statue is twenty feet from you know my little thermometer that has Mercury in it, right? They would have a, a an intentional uh, deeper connection there. Now, so that's the view of the ancient world, and we've been told since the Enlightenment that this is all nonsense, right? There, there's absolutely no connection because as uh, John Locke and uh, David Hume told us, uh, objects are just a bunch of atoms, and then they have these secondary qualities, and that's it, right? They have uh, solidity, extension, and uh, color, and so forth. These are secondary qualities. And then their primary quality would just be that they're a bunch of atoms together, and that's it, right? That's all an object is. It's just those things together. But none of this is true, and most of 20th century science has completely rebutted all of this, but you you still have this residue of everyone still living in the Newtonian uh, uh, causation uh, perspective of, of as you as you pointed out, sort of determinism and, and uh, the mechanistic view, right, of uh, say Descartes or the many of the Enlightenment theorist that that perspective on the world just still dominates and that's what we see in the people like Dawkins and Hitchens and Dennett and so forth uh, it, and it, it doesn't matter how many scientific discoveries come out that actually contradict all this and show that oh actually geometry shows that there are higher dimensions lower dimensions oh the mathematics actually proves this well the response is always well yeah but we can't see it and if we can't see it then we can't believe in it well the problem with that view is that that's that radical empirical view that we can only believe what we directly see is quite easily refuted if these people had to study basic philosophy <laughs> they would know how stupid it is to say that because you don't directly perceive the past you don't per- directly perceive you yourself as a self right these are not direct sense perceptions uh, and by definition according to their perspective you can't believe in those things then you can't believe in the self and you can't believe in the past and then therefore all of your scientific methodologies would then be undercut and annihilated right away because science works on the principle of induction that the future will be like the past, right? Well, that's not something that you can directly observe, right? I can't observe Australia at the moment, right? But it, but I have a warranted uh, epistemic, epistemic justification for believing that Australia is real. I believe that I'm real. I believe that the past is real, right? And but, uh, you know, the academics uh, who, who they're oftentimes the most duped and the most deceived because they have the most invested in the present system and structure because that's where they receive their livelihood and their wage slave paycheck, right? Oh, very much so. I mean, I'm, my 
perspective on the world around me and reality, whatever that's supposed to be, is that I don't believe anything. I either know it or I don't know it. And on that basis, I know little or possibly nothing. <laughs> and that can be an incredibly liberating perspective to see things from. But for a lot of people, it's panic stations because uh, they want to know what the answers are. Yeah, and that's a lot of systems are created to give the impression that you have all the answers. You know, I think about a great example of that Scientology where L. Ron Hubbard just kind of wrote a million books on everything. And <laughs> I guess one of the advantages of being in that group would be that, well, there's a reference, uh, you know, point somewhere in these 700 volumes or whatever uh, for everything, right? So at some point it's been discussed and, oh, we have an answer for that. But, you know, reality, life's not, not that easy. It's not, you can't just pick this thing over here and that gives you every answer to everything. So, uh, you know, that's what philosophy is all about. That's why I study philosophy is that it's about asking questions. It's about uh, challenging your presuppositions, challenging the assumptions. And that's the whole point of the apology. Probably the most famous document in the history of all philosophy is Plato's Apology, where Socrates goes around Athens asking different questions to artisans, to politicians. And, you know, he says if if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And to any listeners out there, this is kind of, you know, the starting point of philosophy. Uh, you know, he goes to the the artisan and he says, the shipmaker, and he says, "What's the what is the meaning of all this? What is the meaning of life?" And the shipbuilder says, "Oh, well, I'll tell you because I happen to know." And he says, uh, "Life is basically like shipbuilding, <laughs> right?" Hmm. So he gives the analogy of building a ship. He goes to the politician, Socrates does, and he says, well, what's the meaning of everything? And the politician says, oh, well, I'll, I know, and I'll tell you. And it's, well, life is like politics and blah, blah, blah. And so Socrates would continue to question these people. And, of course, as he questioned them, they began to realize that they actually didn't have all the answers that they thought they had because uh, the questions got more and more difficult and they weren't as easy to to reply to and this ended up making everyone mad and so by the time socrates goes to the oracle at delphi and he says you know who's the wisest man in athens well the oracle says well you are and the socrates says well why would i be i don't claim to have certainty on these matters and the oracle says that's why you're the wisest man is because you're not arrogant and, and presumptuous you're willing to you were willing to question that's kind of the whole point of the apology and that's the point of philosophy. And it's it's not relativism. It doesn't. A lot of people take that to mean that oh, that means that uh, you know you can't know anything. Right? That that Socrates' whole point was just to tell us that uh, nothing can be known for sure, and we just have to be complete uh, skeptics. No, because Plato actually argued quite extensively with the Sophists, who were the skeptics, the Shermers, the Dennets, the Dawkins of their day, and and quite clearly, I believe, throughout many of the Platonic dialogues, refuted them. And so it's the same uh, same social situation today where you have uh, persons who uh, are philosophers and they can ask questions of persons such as materialists and, and naturalists and they get quite mad when you ask them the questions that they can't answer and they realize that they don't have all the answers. I don't know if you've done a, a show or any segments uh, based on The Prisoner, the TV series that Patrick, Patrick McGoon made back in the day, but... You put me in mind of one of the quotes from that, not from him actually, but I think from, because he's questioning everything and it's that questions are a burden and answers are prison for the mind. <laughs> yeah, I have a pretty extensive analysis called Numbered Man, an analysis of the prisoner. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite shows, absolutely. 
a very, very profound television show that mixes science fiction, fantasy, dystopia, and espionage, you know, all, all of my favorite topics there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's you can, you can go really, really deep with that show, but I think you're right that um, it's really about presenting dialectics and false dialectics and... You know, everyone in the village wants it to just be simple. They want it to just be the way things are. And, of course, as number two explains in one of the episodes, uh, the village is the world. It's the globe. It's the global village. Uh, We think in terms of east-west, good-bad, communist-capitalist, right-wing, left-wing. You know, and then then you have that completely staged election of number six in, I think, episode three. And it demonstrates this this principle exactly that, that we're always caught up in in false dialectics, and unless we're willing to question the dialectic itself and what we think we know, then we're always going to be imprisoned in a in a mind box like you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that occurs in the prisoner is the sort of the various tactics and techniques that they're using on him to try and break him mentally. Mm-hmm. Because right. it's, it's not about physical torture, that's no good, that's too crude, that's not going to work on a trained guy like that. And there's a lot of elements of, as you say, gaslighting. Yes. Up, up is down, black is white, left is right, uh, good is bad. And this puts me in mind of 1984, of course. You know, and we've always been at war with East Asia, we've never been at war with East Asia. And relating right. relating this to what we live under, what we suffer under, in terms of propaganda, advertising, mass media, whether it's uh, movies and TV shows or whether it's the nightly news, there's a lot elements of repeating something. You know, like even like uh, the Nazis said, you know, the, the bigger the lie, the more believable, or you just repeat something again and again. And if you have a mind like Swiss cheese, you can go completely insane. You can break under that type of uh, psychopathic gaslighting. If you're told often enough, that what you see is not what you see. What you yeah. what you did, you did not do. That type of thing. Yeah, it's like that scene in 1984 where he O'Brien's torturing Winston and he tells him, "I want you to see the wrong number of fingers, right? I want you to want that. I don't want you to just tell me that I have five fingers when I have four hold, held up. I want you to actually see five fingers when I'm holding up four. Yeah, exactly. It's like you know that the you know, up is down actually after all. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, Bertrand, Bertrand Russell said that too. He said, "He said I will, I can condition a generation to actually believe that white is black and black is white." You know, in terms of a lot of the things we've been talking about here, I think that we live uh, beneath a veneer of, you know, civilization and science, mm-hmm. and I think that on on a reasonably simplistic level you mentioned earlier about voodoo and about different traditions around the world that are still alive albeit maybe not you know as prominent as they once were um but on a deeper level we look at as we have been different institutions and individuals and things going on around the world events people places and you don't have to scratch very far beneath the surface to find this whole other world and i think that the actual whether you want to call it a cult or esoteric or a world where non-material forces are real and understood as real, if not understood per se, that's that's the majority of it. <laughs> we just think yeah. we just think that it's all now, as you said, microwaves and fridges and air conditioning and uh, progress, and uh, you know, off we march. And in many ways, I think 
the, in the future of our society, um, just to throw in the possible, uh, the possibility of uh, techno-industrial civilization going into reverse at some point, I think we may find ourselves in a magical, mythical future uh, in you know centuries to come. Well, we're already seeing that. I mean, it, the technology that we're seeing nowadays is actually the technology that you see in the ancient myths, right? It's it's like the golden age of the gods is coming, or it's going to be some sort of post-apocalyptic nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it's like one or the other, or maybe both. Maybe both will happen. I don't know. But, but yeah, I've long been of the opinion that uh, the, the ancient myths, stories of the gods and so forth, that they actually do encode uh, the secrets of nature, right? And that's actually just technology. That's what it's all about. And the, the secrets of nature, the, the, the actually the mystery religions, the rituals are more so kind of like alchemical uh, codes for formulas, things like this, combining different metals and, and compounds and elements to produce this, that, and the other thing. And we see that as well with uh, geo, geo, well, not just geoengineering, but um, biological engineering, right? Biometrics, bio a genetic modification of different species, blending them. I mean, this isn't this kind of what we see in the pictures of the gods, right? Dog-headed uh, men, right? I mean, what is that but, uh, you know, kind of an, a nascent primal uh, inkling of what would what would come? Some of the elite figures or elite groups that we might file under breakaway civilization in terms of their agenda and their activities and where they might want to take if not the entire species, then themselves, if we separate them out from more mainstream, more mundane believers in progress, you know, as a one-way street, the latter group, I think, are absolutely terrified, not only of the sort of rise of fundamentalism and all this other mayhem that we see now, but the idea that we're not going in that one direction, we're not going to have a Jetsons-type future of bubble cars and day trips to the moon, and that's that people are, in good and bad, as they see it, regressing to, you know, this more symbolic or, you know, mythical archetypal way of thinking. And right. I see this, uh, for example, you know, you think of something like the Celtic revival and you see different types of spirituality around the world, you know, sort of, I see a bubbling up of, of interest in, in Celtic, uh, spirituality and in Nordic spirituality happening now in North and Western Europe as a response to, I'm just mentioning that because that's where I happen to live, but in response to various cultural uh, sort of imperial trends that have been there in mm -hmm. some cases for centuries. And it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. And as I say, it's good and it's bad. It's not, you know, it's black and it's white. It's, it's a spectrum. But for hardcore materialists, it's a very alarming uh, set of trends. Yeah, they they they're so they're the most dogmatically uh, closed-minded characters in a box that 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 could possibly be. I mean, I always bring this up as an example because I don't see how anyone from that perspective could answer this. But how would Plato and the Timaeus know about uh, you know the subatomic level of reality being structured into Platonic solids? How would we have things like cymatics, where sound produces form? How would we have these uh, gigantic, uh, I don't mean necessarily the Nazca lines, I think probably those could, could have potentially been made by some human artifice, but how do we have these ancient, uh, you know, grid structures that exist in Siberia and Russia, you know, across the planet that seem to 
be areas where no humans are supposedly to have ever existed. I mean, how do we have these things? Well, they don't. They just have no explanation, uh, and they don't give good explanations. They say the planet's just formed by this kind of lint dust, this lint ball model where it's shit's just spinning around in space, and then it collects more stuff on top of it, like a big ball of belly button lint. And then after a million years, you get a planet. Well, that is the most ridiculous explanation. And that's what you get. That's what I got in my college astronomy class of how planets form. <laughs> that's mm. completely preposterous. Right? Nobody, <laughs> no one has ever observed this. There's absolutely no evidence for this uh, preposterous theory. And so the reality is that they just don't know as much as they think they know. And they, they, they're masters at giving the impression of knowing all things. Right? That's the whole thing. And uh, the... Ancient uh, perspectives, mythology, these things are much more accurate in explaining things. Right? I mean, yeah, there's superstition and there's errors and, and people do make up stories and you have to ferret that out. But if you can get down to the allegorical deeper meaning behind these, these stories of the gods, you get a much better picture, a much more accurate metaphysics of how the world works than you do with uh, rationalism and scientism that, you know, these things have not produced the progress that that it, it all depends on what your vantage point is, right? I mean, progress is a qualitative judgment that you make about something. It's not something that's just automatically out there in the world. I mean, just because something's more complex, does that doesn't necessarily mean that it's progressive, right? Because progressive is relative; it's subjective to what within your paradigm you believe uh, the movement in certain directions is, right? Like, so if if I if I complete a, if I make a really complex bomb, right, is that progressive? Well, it all depends on what, I mean, is, is technological advance in itself necessarily progressive? No, I mean, it, it all depends, right? So just, this is a huge uh, presupposition that modern modernity has that is, that they don't think to question, right? So, I mean, that's what I would say to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I would say, well, maybe we're actually devolving. I mean, look at the public, right? Look at most people. They look like, uh, Morlocks from H.G. Wells stories, right? So, uh, you know, and of course I'm sure he would ultimately say, well, actually that's kind of a good thing because that's just evolution weeding out the lesser members of uh, of the human race or whatever. But point being is that uh, there's no automatically known concept of, quote, progress that doesn't exist within some interpretive framework or paradigm of belief about the world. And if you haven't thought about your worldview, then... You're not going to have some a priori conception of what progress is. Well, considering as well that in this soup of the species that's supposed to be uh, more or less all wanting progress, whatever that is, as you say, you've got characters basically nihilistic. And, you know, like, for example, uh, use another sci-fi example here. I'm always reminded of this one episode of Doctor Who. This was uh, back in the 70s and early 80s when Tom Baker was Doctor Who. I love the Tom Baker episodes, yeah. Yeah, well, they're the ones I grew up with, and there's this one point where the psychopathic, crazy mastermind of the Daleks, a guy called Davros, who's sort of, I would say wheelchair-bound, but he's sort of half-Dalek himself. (laughs) It's great. And in this one episode, uh, the Doctor confronts him, and uh, he says, basically, if you had a a file of... um, uh, germs, you know, between your thumb and forefinger, and you knew that by breaking that open, you would wipe out all life in the galaxy. I think he was trying to test his limits. He said, would you do it? And Davros, Davros thinks about it, and you can see him almost salivating with glee. And he goes, yes, 
yes, I would, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that men- yeah. that mentality exists, and it isn't just in the Daleks, you know, which was thinly veiled, you know, version of the Nazis, wasn't it really? And, that, and that, that's part of our consciousness as well, even if it is, even if it seems to someone like me, and maybe you, that it is like a different species when we look at, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, some of these people that are not, not all there. Yeah, I think you could, uh, I mean, people talk about aliens. I don't really buy into the alien stuff, but I do buy into uh, higher dimensional, interdimensional spiritual entities, right? And and I think that uh, that's what we're looking at here, and I think that you can be possessed. And, uh, you know, we look at these people like in the uh, stories about the U.K. situation with Savile and these, uh, Ted Heath and these different people like this that, uh, we have our own uh, examples of this in the U.S. with uh, Sandusky and um, the Franklin cover-up and these things. You know, these are people who are, are uh, completely other, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're wholly given over to this uh, utterly parasitical, uh, degenerate uh, vampirical perspective and you know that just can't be explained on the normal darwinian models of things because even even in the darwinian models if the species has its impetus to survive the survival of the fittest well then the tribes and the species that that exist can't tolerate those kinds of members in their social order right so in other words the reason for why people might be that way on that model is usually described as some sort of apex predator slash, uh, uh, you know, radical version of survival of the fittest. But the problem is that survival of the fittest is always couched in this generic general term of the species, right? The, the species has the impetus to survive. And those kinds of things are like a cancer, right? They're, they don't promote the survival of the species. So that's not an adequate explanation for why you would have certain members being completely parasitic on their own species. Uh, evil is a good explanation for that. Yeah, I mean, if you had, in a traditional society, if you had a Savile-type character, I'm thinking, you know, like an indigenous society, he would be taken out to the woods and bled exactly. quietly. And that's what they used to do. That's what they used to do. Yeah, exactly. When you look at someone like Savile, uh, this is Jimmy Savile, former BBC presenter, if, if people out there still haven't heard of this guy, and you look at his activities as they have emerged or you know as they have been presented because obviously i don't know anything firsthand about it but i don't want to add in too many caveats there you know but if we take it at face value you're looking at some kind of absolutely degenerate scum i mean it's just you just want to vomit even thinking about any of the things that he did and yet here's someone who i mean can you really look at the nature nurture debate that whole question that formula of trying to work these things out and say that somehow savile maybe had something bad happen in his childhood or which i'm not sure that he did actually or is there some kind of you know the element in there as you say that's beyond our physical and mental development uh, really when when it when it comes into play in such disturbing ways yeah, I, I think there's such a thing as uh, generational curses, generational uh, cults. These things are real. Think about the Sabbatean, the Frankists. They were they were generational. So I understand from at least scholarly treatments of the subject of the Sabbateans. Uh, is, is, this is not a new thing. This is uh, you know we, we think that uh, we don't live in a world where there were Aztec empires that you know sacrificed 
thousands of people on holy days, right? You think about Mel Gibson's film Apocalypto or something. Now, I mean, as far as I understand, these things are, are real. They're true. Uh, they're not just the stories of conquistadors making it up. I think that uh, these indigenous cultures really did operate that way. Uh, many Mexicans, uh, Hispanics, and so forth who come from those cultures speak this way. They talk about the fact that, uh, you know, that's how their ancestors operated. And, uh, you know, human sacrifice is something that really has happened in the history of the human race. It's not it's not new. And my, my thesis would be that it also didn't go away. And you can't really explain that phenomena on a Darwinian um, naturalistic perspective. I think you need to bring in these concepts that we think are outmoded, outdated, medieval, and ancient of, of ideas like evil. It's supernatural evil and so forth. It's a much better model for explaining these things. Just to take a slight cul-de-sac, we were talking a short while ago about the formation of planets, for example, and specifically the Earth. We talked at the top of the hour just about this idea of a secret space agenda, and this stems from you know a long-standing idea about you know black programs and technological development going on at some of the elite levels we're talking about. And I don't think any, anyone would really be surprised that the military, for example, might develop systems and weapons that they wouldn't want to talk openly about you know maybe until they're ready to or maybe at all for various uh-huh. reasons in terms of secret space agenda and uh, the actual global civilization perhaps you can say a little bit about some, what some of the ideas behind this term are and relative to the actual space program that we have seen you know of, of moon landings real or staged the space shuttle program, because I've always, always been a little bit sceptical about what is being presented to us um, yeah. versus what is there. And the popular face of the space program and of um, astronomy, people like Carl Sagan, and for me growing up, Arthur C. Clarke, as mm-hmm. years gone by and I've got older and looked back at their work, I've just thought that there was an element of, of gatekeeping here, an element of myth-making, of weaving a story, we, we, you know, weaving a narrative that was really for public consumption and it wasn't necessarily about what was actually going on. Oh, absolutely. I think you're spot on there. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's kind of what I touched on in my talk at the Secret Space Program conference was, you know, I, I, I didn't want to go beyond what I felt like I had a, a decent basis of evidence to talk about in my research and i kind of take an agnostic position on on aliens i don't really have any evidence that for me confirms existence of aliens uh i have no problem being corrected on that if there's some sort of evidence that's out there that shows it for sure Uh, but what i do know about is the that um, you know you can look at what NASA has put forward, and I think that they've been caught lying so many times. They put out so much disinformation. They promoted agendas that line up completely with globalism so so well that we. I just don't have any personal trust in that organization, and I tend to kind of. I've been just just speculating here recently after giving my talk and reading more and thinking about it. I'm kind of leaning towards thinking that. You know, NASA might even be kind of just a facade front for, as Catherine Austin Fitz talked about in her lecture, funneling all of this black budget money into black projects that that we know exist, like the NSA. So maybe take out one of those A's in the title, and you get NSA out of that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I know that the NSA is involved in surveillance, but it's the same uh, shadow government that 
that is involved in wep- the weaponization of space, which Reagan uh, spoke openly about at in 1983 regards to the Star Wars Defense Initiative, and the Star Wars Defense Initiative was part of DARPA. DARPA is who created the Internet. The Internet is going to be involved in the Skynet AI tracking systems, the weaponization of space, as I said. And so that's kind of what I think is going on here. It's it's uh, That's probably, we, we're given this front facade of 1960s technology of chemical-based rocketry. Uh, meanwhile, we have actual, you know, stealth bombers that can fly. <laughs> that's other 60s technology, but we can't take stealth bombers into space it doesn't really make sense i don't i don't buy into what we're told uh but i do buy into the fact that you know they publish white papers that talk about the weaponization of space utilizing ai in the in the uh, satellite networks utilizing ai for uh, ground-based communications tracking of the globe uh so that's kind of what my take on it and so if i look at something like seti search for extraterrestrial intelligence i take a pragmatic perspective and say you know are you going to put hundreds of millions of dollars into a bunch of satellites to send emails to aliens or are you going to put that up to surveil global communications traffic (laughs) yeah to me the pragmatic power grab that we actually see in the 2015 film specter the recent bond film that's what it's about you know, Blofeld's base actually kind of looks like uh, Site R or, you know, or one of these uh, uh, Australian reconnaissance uh, NSA type things. I and mean, that's what it looks like. I mean, they even, it's even about that, right? In the plot, sorry to spoil it for you if you haven't seen Spectre yet, but but that's kind of what I think is going on here is that uh, it's about erecting that, that um, smart city global surveillance grid. That's That's what the IBM CEO talks about in public lectures. Uh, that the smart cities will be integrated into all of you know the microwave that you have. That's what the CIA director talked about in Wired magazine two years ago, three years ago. Uh, that's where it's going. Uh, now, as for aerospace tech, uh, well, I'm of the opinion that all those Foo Fighters and these different aerial phenomena that are that are spoken of as UFOs and aliens are really just uh, the black technology that's been developed. Uh, that's what these lights are flying around these. Uh, glowing bl- balls that float around and that that's all uh, black secret tech that you know was probably developed uh, 20 30 years ago well you mentioned the internet and this brought to mind uh, are you familiar with the work of cliff high and his web bots and uh-huh. well you, know, you might be interested to look it up but basically he's trolling using web bots to troll the internet to spot emerging patterns and trends and then try to see if he can match that up, not just to events as they happen, but how they might happen. This puts in mind things like, I think it was David Mandel, the man who painted 9-11, as it were, you know, in, in terms of the past and the future, and we're getting quite metaphysical now, being somewhat, a small percentage, accessible and even malleable, whether you're talking about you know, altering the past sounds just absolutely wild and it's not something we've got time to go into or somehow affecting the future by maybe one, two, three percent. But that could be enough to turn a situation to your advantage. And I was hearing just on the radio this morning, this is just a little side nugget that I can't remember what the percentage was, but this disturbing number of digital natives, that is to say, kids who have only known the world with the Internet, mm-hmm. a, a significant percentage of them 
believe that everything that shows up in Google or their preferred search engine is real. They just basically say if it shows up in Google, that means it's real. It happened. So if you take the idea of the Internet shaping what people think and then some people believing that everything on the Internet is based in reality, and then you map that across to... I've interviewed people who are convinced that some of the physical events in the world, for example, climate change, are physical manifestations of our collective consciousness. If you stir everything I've just talked about into a big soup, you get this, we could do another whole hour on that in itself, but it's just very, very significant. Um, Yeah, I I, I agree. I I have some uh, articles where I talk about how the the Internet is basically a big uh, collection tool for the AI to have a kind of subconscious from which to draw from. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the the internet itself this is kind of uh, etheric matrix that uh, will will store and collect data is intended to be a kind of global hive brain copy of the collective consciousness right it's the anima mundi the soul of the world put into a mirrored form just like uh, leibniz talked about the ability to create a logic machine based on the human mind so if you know about Platonism, it's based on the idea of mirroring things, and you can mirror what's in nature into an artifice of some sort, right? So Leibniz, a long time ago, figured out that he foresaw computers because he said that I can foresee a logic machine based on the principles of the human mind. And this, the same thing goes in reverse, right? So if we build a massive uh, AI system that is based on the human mind or and the subconscious as well, then you could also potentially send back to the human mind through this big Borg hive thing uh, messages, memes, archetypes that then affect reality. So I, I completely agree with that. Have you read Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke? You, you have. have. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something we can get into. I'd love to do a show with you just based on, on some of my favorite sci-fi movies and books maybe it's something we can arrange for the future but just in the interest of time today jay i'll put a final point to you this idea we talked about a breakaway civilization an elite Mm -hmm. a clique people who maybe are different they certainly got access to things that we don't that we don't know about right what is the end game in your experience in your view as it stands now because we can look outside the window or we can look on the tv and the other media and we can see nothing short of what appears to be ecocide, genocide, even you know suicide on the part of, of some of these individuals that appear to be saying that oh you know bright shiny future. So it doesn't. It looks like some of the talk about you know where things are going versus what's actually happening just are diametrically opposed. So in end game, how, how do you see it for some of the uh, groups and individuals that we've been talking about? I think Brave New World is the ultimate explanation of it all. Uh, there Certainly there are plenty of films and movies that explicate the end game of the breakaway civilization. You could look at uh, all the way back maybe to Bacon and the New Atlantis. Uh, you could go back into ancient mythology of the, the Greeks, Atlantis, the, that mythology, Olympus itself kind of being a breakaway civilization. And the elites think of themselves as gods, so... Uh, why not create an actual breakaway civilization and utilize AI and these different things to further that? So that's what I think is going on. But uh, the the 
movie Contact, that's a private space program, Breakaway Civilization, Gattaca, Breakaway Civilization, uh, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow, The Box, Elysium with Matt Damon. Uh, you know, we've seen this. We can look at fiction as well. As I said, Brave New World, Asimov's Foundation, uh, Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrugged. These all, these all, I think, give us pi- a picture uh, from an artistic perspective, I think artists are able to kind of draw from the collective consciousness and put it into symbolic form in a way that bureaucrats and government officials can't do. And that's why it's worth looking at art and fiction and Hollywood and film to figure out what's going on, even at times more so than uh, trying to dig up white papers. I and mean, the white papers are good to learn and read about, but they're going to tell you what's going on <laughs> in a movie anyway. So. Uh, you know, Hunger Games is uh, Agenda 21. It's dividing the regions up to, into Pan Am, Pan America. That's the new global government with uh, a bunch of FEMA regions that are basically living in poverty status. You, you're not allowed to hunt. You're not allowed to fish or farm. You have to eat the, the government slop. And it's ultimately Brave New World because Brave New World is about a breakaway civilization where they have a, an island where the elites go and they can do whatever they want. And the rest of the world is under 10 uh, world socialist technocratic leaders. Splendid. Well, Jake, we could talk about this as a literally for hours. And I know people always say that at the end of radio shows, but in this case, it's true. Before we close off for today, just tell listeners about your website. Um, There's a lot of resources and materials there. And also uh, you've got a book, uh, which is due out spring of 2016. Maybe you'd like to share a little info about that. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, if you go to jaysanalysis.com, you'll see that I have, uh, there's about 100 film reviews there. And then there's about five or 600 articles that deal with uh, philosophy, geopolitics, the esoteric, metaphysics, Platonism. Um, my support, my site is supported by the subscription service, which allows me to continue to write these articles for readers. And then I offer uh, private subscription-only philosophy lectures and interviews. So if you're interested in learning about Plato and the ancients and metaphysics, then you can subscribe to my site for $4.95 a month, and I send those out. I try to send them out weekly, but sometimes I get really busy. But there's already an archive uh, from which to draw from there. And then, as you said, my book, Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film, will be available in the spring from Trine Day Publishers. I also, by the way, host uh, a late-night talk show that's uh, talknetwork.com through Natural News with Mike Adams. And uh, it's conveniently titled Esoteric Hollywood. So that's every uh, Tuesday to Friday night, 10 p.m. Pacific. Excellent. Well, Jay, thanks once again for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. All right. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. You can also browse and buy a range of publications from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Whether you listen, donate, or do both, I greatly appreciate your support. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.
Thank <laughs> you.